Uh, I see we do have some new people, so I'll just introduce myself. I'm Dave Hale, and uh, I'm just happy I get to come to you guys' church, so thank you for that. <laughs> um, just a second, we're going to bring Tyler Handel up. Uh, as Karen said, he's a great friend of ours, a relationship we've had for many, many years from a, a relating church up in uh, Atlanta, uh, great church. If you ever get a chance to, and you're in Atlanta to visit, it's called Northlands Church, uh, so um, he'll, he's one of the pastors there, so he's going to be preaching in just a second. But I'm going to ask Karen to come up. Karen had a, we have, we've had Handel this whole weekend. Uh, Handel. <laughs> We're doing the military thing. So we've had uh, Tyler this whole weekend uh, doing some leadership stuff and training, that kind of stuff. Uh, but Karen had a dream. Um, I think it was yesterday, wasn't it, Karen? You had the dream? And I'm going to just get her to share that. And then Tyler's going to come up. He doesn't need an introduction more than what I just gave. But he's going to come up and just share a little about the weekend. Uh, but I'm going to ask Karen to share that dream and then process it a little bit. Um, and if anybody's wondering whether... Um, uh, we were matching. This This wasn't on purpose that we're doing the island theme. And then Tyler said, um, did Karen buy you that shirt? And I was like, you know, she did. And he said, so it was planned. So anyway, that was just. <laughs> yeah, good morning, you guys. Um, so let me just kind of like give a couple of like, I want to just give some nuggets of some past prophetic words that are over this house. Um, one of them was that um, we're preparing and getting ready, everyone getting in their lane and um, there was an on your mark. So everyone get in your lane, kind of like in a race. And then get, set, go would be something that would happen very quickly. Um, also, um, uh, at the beginning of the year, um, or it was like uh, last year, sorry, it was like that there was like a new horizon. It was seeing a new horizon, something that's new that's coming. And we know that a lot of these things are not just tied into us specifically, but what we see happening quite often on a global scale of what God is doing in the church. And um, so those are just a couple. And then at the new part of this year, we also had um, a prophetic word about how our church in, like, just the ministry of DCF would be known for its quality in our city and in the region. And um, also another one was, and I'm giving these in very brief nutshells, y'all. So, um, and then another one was that um, there was a picture of, like, seeing angels in the rafters of DCF kind of, like, just brushing off um, uh, treasures. So the treasures are there. They haven't gone anywhere. So the treasures are there and they were the colors of pink and blue. So pink and blue is very significant because it's new birth, it's babies. And so we know that the Lord is continuing what he has planned and what his heart is into DCF. And we are a church that trembles at the word of the Lord to lean into that and what he's saying. And so yesterday morning, we've had trainings, we've had meetings not only um, for this weekend um, and meeting with Tyler, but also through the last few months and Tyler coming um, previously as well. And so, but yesterday morning I had a dream that we, that Dave and I were at like a car show event and they called my name and they said, Karen, hell, you have a new car. And um, <laughs> we don't normally even like sign up for raffles, y'all. So we were like, oh, this is kind of cool. So we went to kind of go check out the car and we went to check out the car. It was a white CTS Cadillac which is a sports-type car, but a luxury-end car, like a high-end that can also go fast. But as we were looking at the car, everything was kind of finished and complete, but when I looked in the back, I was like, this doesn't look like a new car. It looks like it's been restored. And, um, but in the part that was being restored, the color of it was purple, which I think is very significant because it represents royalty and um, uh, uh, just wealth, prosperity, and just the things of the kingdom and royalty and who we are as sons and daughters and the inheritance that we get to live in. But what was interesting to me is that that was the only part that wasn't restored. But the car was almost finished. And I feel like it's such a 
heart of the Lord or a word of the Lord over us as a church that we're not doing something brand new. The car, you know, because the car wasn't brand new, it was something that had been restored, and it's almost complete. It's almost finished, but it's still in the purposes that the Lord has for it. And so I just want to encourage us this morning as a house that we are in the vehicle that we need to be in. It's not something changing, something that's very vastly different, but it's where the Lord's heart is for us and um, what we're leaning into. So um, that was just kind of the dream, and um, we'll be processing that even a little bit more of what the Lord has for us, and Tyler's going to share a little bit too with that. So Tyler, coming up, uh, yesterday we had lunch. Uh, the, the waitress called him Mr. Handsome. So, well, I, lo- Mr. I love Handsome. this place. <laughs> I just love this place. <laughs> and somebody paid for that lunch for me. So I was like, I got my meal paid. For, I was like Julia Robertson, pretty woman. And I was like, I was just like happy and uh, no, it's funny because Karen shared that dream with us when we were in route and driving, and it was before we had our leadership meeting on Saturday morning with uh, a, amount of, a good amount of the team there. And so she shared it. And I said, you know, I don't, I don't really have anything to add to that or what that would mean. And then in our conversation Saturday, I made a reference. It wasn't in my notes, but we were talking about some of the practical things. And I said, you know, look, it's, it's like the, the driver's not changing, but the vehicle, how we get somewhere is, is shifting and changing. And so when she, we talked about the dream again, I said, hey, it could be some of this. And I think for me, prophetic words are really helpful. It, it kind of gives us feelings, but, but we ought to talk about kind of practically, okay, what does that mean? And so I'm not by no means a dream interpreter or thinking that this is interpretation. I think there's a lot more to it. But I think for me, in my preparation for coming here and not just preaching this morning, but to, to work with the team that's uh, leading this church, uh, the Lord's just been talking to me about the how aspects. How are, we, how are we going to get there? We heard the word of the Lord, but how do we get there? And I really feel like the dream itself is the Lord is um, what we've been working on as a team, and that'll be kind of unfolding in the, in the years to come. And so if you're a member here and you weren't a part of that leadership meeting, just know this, there's not some new radical uh, thing. Dave's not going to have like pink hair next week and be like, it's the new thing we're doing. It, you know, like that's, that's not what's happening. It's, 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 we're the same church called to go to the same place that the Lord has been calling this church to for, for years. What we're talking about is how do we get there? And it feels like what, I, what I'm encouraged by is that this car is not brand new. It's going, there's not some strategy or branding out there that we got to try and pull in something brand new. And like, this is what the cool thing is now, you know, after COVID and 2022. And, you know, it's everything that you guys are. Every, every piece that makes up DCF, those are the very pieces that you need in order to get there. And so I really just feel like the Lord is going, hey, who you are is enough. The DNA of this house is right. The destination I've called you to is exactly where you should be going. The leadership and the drivers that are in this car driving the vehicle, they're the right leaders. What we're talking about is there's this little piece of the car, and we, we see those pieces now, and they're just being moved in place. And so I think there's more to come in that, but that's just... Uh, my two cents worth um, on that. I, I got to dri- dive into today's um, message. I want to say, as I'm just kind of setting up my notes, it, it, as always, this is a home away from home for me. Ministry is, is hard work in a number of ways. My voice right now is going out because we've had a lot of meetings, and so please bear with me. I, I don't always sound, uh, like in my head, I sound like Morgan Freeman or De- Denzel Washington, like, like my man, you know. I'm sure I sound worse to you guys, um, so, so just bear with me in that regard, but um, even when there's ministry can be draining sometimes, Th- this time with you, it tr- I, I would not say this if I really, it fills my soul. This has probably been the highlight of my June, and I'll even start kind of my message and talking about the end of my May and going into June for context, what I feel like Lord is sharing, but uh, it's just been a, a solid four days for me. I needed this. Um, just so grateful to have some really helpful meetings, but even just connecting with 
um, some of the leaders here, it's been a big deal. Um, I want to I start by saying, I don't normally do this, but uh, I want to start by just recommending three books because I don't have, I, I, the message that I have in my heart, I think it's, um, there's some things that the Lord is still working in me through, but if I had 10 weeks to preach a series and I asked Dave and he said no, uh, <laughs> he didn't know. If I had 10 weeks, I, I, would, I would lay a lot out. I'm going to cover a lot of ground today. Um, but a lot of what the Lord's been speaking to me besides the scriptures are through these three books. Um, John Mark Comer's book, if you've not heard of John Mark Comer, hear about him now. Um, he's, he's a great pastor, actually in Portland, Oregon, probably uh, in his mid-40s. Um, and he wrote a book called Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It has been a helpful book for me personally. I've read it now for the second time this year. I'll be reading it again next year. It's one of those books where I just need to remind myself until I can really imbibe it. Uh, but it was a big influence in today's message. Uh, his other book, Live No Lies, there's a portion of my message that really has some influence there as well. I think it's a helpful book. Um, but I would say this, John Mark Comer would say that he was influenced significantly by a few different voices, Dallas Willard and also this book by Richard Foster, The Celebration of Disciplines, what he means by that our spiritual practices. Um, so in a way, if I, could, if I could say it this way, uh, John Mark Comer is like Richard Foster Light. You know, if you need like a light, no calorie situation, like that's a great book to start with, but this is a little bit more dense. I would recommend all three. If you're not a reader though, just read that one right there. That's what I would recommend because there's a lot that I want to cover and I just cannot get through all of it, but I wanted to lay those books before you because I think that they'll even be able to share way better uh, than I can today. Here's, here's where I want to begin. Um, if, you, if we haven't met yet, um, my personality, I'm, I'm what I would describe as an extreme extrovert, um, meaning my voice, I knew my voice was going out, and I didn't care. I still wanted to party and hang out with you guys, and so I just kept talking anyway, and I kept going, because I love people. I love connection. I get, I get energy from moments like this, and so I am an extreme extrovert. The reason I tell you that is not because I want you to know about me, uh, but it's because uh, if you're not an extreme extrovert, it might not seem odd to you, but I went on vacation with my wife and my daughter, um, uh, at end of May, going into June, we were going to visit my parents in North Carolina at the beach just to get eight days away um, in my hometown. And so when you go to your hometown, uh, you know, if you, if, you're, if you live out of state and you go to vacation in your hometown, you've got a lot of friends that you grew up with, guys that you want to reconnect with. I've got several pastor friends similar to my relationship with Dave that are in North Carolina. And so we love to get together and just talk church and connect. And I was driving into North Carolina, and I looked at my wife, and it just kind of hit me. And I looked at her, and I go, I don't want to talk to anyone. And she's an introvert. So like, she thought I was flirting with her. You know what I mean? Like she, so she, I can't even describe the kiss that I got, but it was like, it was like she was like, this is amazing. So you're just gonna like, hey. So, cause normally what happens is I get into town and I'm like, hey, I'm gonna do coffee with this guy Tuesday morning. I'm gonna do coffee with this guy Tuesday afternoon. I'm gonna do coffee. And she's like, are you gonna eat some food or just coffee? I'm like, probably just coffee. And I'm just meeting with people, filling up my time, filling up my time. And I love that cause it gives me energy. And I was so drained that I couldn't be me. And I, I knew then, when, as soon as I said it, I wasn't going to change. I was like, no, I, wanna, I want eight days of rehab because that's the kind of vacation I need. But I, but I knew something in me was wrong. There was significant red flags. Going, hey, that's not Tyler. That's not how God made Tyler. And so I, I don't know about you, but have you ever gone on vacation and go, this is, this is less of a vacation for me of all the fun activities we're going to do and more about I need at least four days out of my week to just rehab. Has that been anybody's story? Have you ever used vacation as a time of going, I just need to get away from what this is and I need to go somewhere else before I kill someone? Like, I mean, like, I'm, like, I'm like, something's off. Because here's the reality. I go, if I didn't kill somebody, I was, something in me was dying. And so I, I'm getting away. And I, and, and I gotta tell you, my, I told my mom the same kind of what I, what I just shared with you. And I said, yeah, I'm just, she asked how I was doing. I go, yeah, this is where I am. And so day one, you know, day, she's like, hey, how are you feeling now? And I'm like, I'm 
I'm still not talking to anybody. I was talking to her, I'm talking to my parents, but like, I'm not talking to any of my friends, I'm not calling people, close friends of mine. And uh, by about th- day three or four, I said, yeah, I'm starting to feel a little bit better, but by, I've got eight days, by about, you know, you know you do this, like day six or seven, you're already thinking about the Monday back to work. Like, you're like, I don't have time to really hang out here because I'm gonna, I like, I'm gonna go pay for what I just did of leaving for eight days. I've got like a stack of emails I know are there. And so I, and so I felt this weight kind of on me, this exhaustion coming on me. And so for me, I just want to say, if you can identify with that, have you, would you say that that's the majority of the way that you vacation in some regard? Is it something that you go, hey, when it's time to get out of town, it's, because I, it's not because necessarily we planned it as much as it's like, if we don't plan something, something's going to go bad here. Yeah, I, my question is this. My question is, 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 where does that come from? And here's what I want to lay before us today. I want to talk about unhurrying our lives, and not just because it's, it's, a, it's a helpful way of living. I would argue it's a spiritual discipline. I would argue it's a spiritual practice that Jesus would call us to. As we get into Matthew later on, as he says, hey, there's an easy yoke that I have. He's talking about the way in which we work our lives. I love, um, and, and here's the problem. I love what Kerry Newhoff says in his book, uh, At Your Best. He says this, time off won't heal you when your problem is how you spend your time on. I'll say that again because if you didn't catch it, you need to hear it because that's, that's where I think a lot of us are. It studies that say 95% of us operate like this. We go on vacation to fix what we've been doing in our life. And his, his thing is that you don't have a vacation problem. You have a doing life wrong problem. It's not, so vacation, going to vacation and thinking you're gonna just plan this epic va- vacation and go, this is gonna fix me enough. I'm going, there's times to get away, but there's a difference between escapism and solitude, and we'll get there as we close today. But my point is to say, if we go and think, hey, I need eight days to go fix myself, it's not going to work. Certainly not long-lasting. And so at the very least, in the state that I was in, in the state as, as you're, you're nodding your heads, I'm assuming you've been in this state as well, we at least go on those eight days just to try and reset and try again. My question is, if we try that vacation, we rehab, we detox, we fix ourselves, we try to go again, I feel like there's this life cycle that we live in where we go, uh, we overwork, we overcommit our lives, we overprogram our lives, we do not get enough sleep, we do not work out and, and, and have, phys- we give, who has time for physical health? Like, I don't have time for that. People are like, what do you, the hardest question I've ever asked at my dentist was not about my teeth. They go, hey, can you tell us who your primary physician is? I'm like, Normally, my mom handles this kind of stuff. That's the last time I talked to my doctor. <laughs> like, normally, when I go to my, he was a pediatrician. It was the last time that I went to a, get a physical. And I'm like, because who's got time for that? Certainly, if we don't have time for our physical health, we're not thinking about our emotional state, our mental state. We're not thinking about our spiritual state. And so, for me, the reason that this is such a big deal is I don't think our culture and the world that we live in is, is helping it either especially in the U.S. There's so many things I love about the U.S. I'm gonna be very careful because we're almost on July 4th. I mean, it's, I love America. But we have these mantras across our states, things like in New York where they go, we're the city that never sleeps. Like it's a badge of honor. Like there's a, there's a this, this overworking, this overcommitment. We have the cycle. We overwork, we overcommit, we undersleep. And then what we do is we just keep doing that until finally we snap at our spouse or at our kids. It's never with our colleagues. Everybody thinks we're normal at work. Like, oh, they're so polite. It's when you're at home and how you act there. That's who you really are. And you snap, and then all of a sudden you go, hey, hey, babe, I'm so sorry. I just need a vacation. And you go on vacation, and you, you make promises to yourself and make promises to your spouse. Like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change. I'm going to fix myself. And you're genuinely, like, you're committed to change. And you do for, like, two months. And then you overcommit a little bit at a time. You overwork a little bit at a time. You start going, hey, I can just get five hours of sleep today. I can't get seven. And you just go into that cycle. 
again and again and again, and you repeat until you snap, you take a vacation, and you go on. My observation of our uh, culture and the people that live in our culture is uh, we are consumers by nature. The need for more is rampant, especially here, this idea that the answer is always more. I'm not against bigger houses or nicer cars or bigger and more extravagant vacations by any means, but we just assume, hey, if you could have a vacation like this or a vacation like in Europe or Italy for the same price, obviously the answer is always more, right? Like we should always do that. If we can have the, a bigger house for the same mortgage payment, the answer is always more. I'm not against more. I'm just simply saying we're not asking the questions. Where are our limitations? Jesus, Jesus uh, uh, continually points people back to Genesis 1 about God's design. And in Genesis 1, he says, you are made in the image of God which is awesome. You're made of eternity, but you are not God because you're also made of dust. And dust has very real limitations. And so for us to explore our limitations today, I think are helpful. Other observations, we are doing our darndest to be omnipresent like God, but we're dust. And what I mean by that is you got your third arm, your cell phone. You notice how you're connected to every single problem all, everywhere in the world, at every moment of every day. If you want to know what's happening in any part of the world, you can, and it's brutal in many places. Like, just the real, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about what's happening in, in Ukraine and in, in, in Russia and all those things, but I'm just saying, like, this was like 50, 60 years later, how much news we get of that every day we wouldn't have. And so my point is, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, and he actually has the power to hold those problems. We do not. And so just the fact that I think something in our psyche is getting overwhelmed and overdriven and overcharged. Uh, work is now with us 24-7 because our emails are always with us. You don't point at your spouse and don't raise your hand because I don't want to make families you know, divide. But it's like, how many times have you gone, hey, I gotta, before I, we have dinner, I just got to get this email. There's an emergency. I can't wait till Monday. Can't wait. There's a, there's a problem. Some of you are like smirking. Quit attacking me with your words, Tyler. Quit attacking me with your words. I do the same thing, and I, go, and I justify it, and I go, oh, but it's a church email, so I'm more spiritual. I'm going, no, it's attached to us. It's always, work is always with us, and it's amazing to me. God himself goes, hey, six days of work, and then you stop. That was God for himself. You think you need to stop? I'm not attacking you. I'm just kind of pointing out the Bible at the moment. We'll, we'll get to my attacks. Uh, this one's going to hurt you a little bit. Uh, attention spans in 2003, the human attention span in 2003 was 12 seconds. Like, that doesn't sound like a lot of time. Well, it dropped in 2013 to eight seconds. And that might not be a big deal, a four-second difference, but goldfish have a nine-second attention span. Your kid's beta fish in his room has more focus than you as a grown adult. Selah. That's, a, that's a, something shifting in us. 2003, the cell phones that we now hold, then there. 2013, we shift our attention span, and now we are, we are constantly overreaching, over-limiting ourselves. We live in a country that's like, hey, you can't afford that? Don't worry, you got a credit card. Overextend yourself. Uh, culture, the culture we live in prides ourselves on their always of overworking, never sleeping, always in the hustle. That's always the way. Now, my question is, is what does this have to do with us and the Bible and God, and why are we talking about this in church I would argue that this idea of hurry impacts your spiritual life significantly in, in incredible, incredible ways, and we'll explore some of that today. I love what uh, Dallas Willard, he's a, an author and a philosopher, a Christian man, he said this when he was asked about what are some of the enemies of spiritual life, and he said this, he said, hurry, it is the great enemy of your spiritual life. Hurry. I don't know about you, but if you thought about your spiritual life, don't you think you'd say something else besides hurry? Like, like, like gross sin, that would, be, that would be a real enemy. 
or, or like, an, like an, an, a hidden addiction. That would be a real enemy. Greed, pride, those are, those are real enemies. He says hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life. And then he says this. He says, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our life. And that word ruthless, we really like ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our life. And what does that mean? John Mark Comer, his book was uh, obviously titled based off of uh, the work of Willard, who's been a big influence on him. That's why I encourage you to read the book. Now, if you thought I was attacking you with your words, or with my words, I'm about to attack you further. Sorry. I just want to lay before you a problem, because if you're not convinced that there's a problem, I want to just, we're going we're to just recognize there's a bit of an issue. We suffer from a very real, and I mean this very, this is a very real disease. Doctors have come out with it, and it's called hurry sickness. And it has a significant effect on our lives, both physically and mentally and emotionally and most certainly spiritually. Here's, here's the, the, the U.S. Dictionary's definition of hurry sickness. It is a behavior pattern characterized by an urgent and persistent need to feel busy or productive and often an anxious, excessive preoccupation with work at the expense of relaxation and social, socializing. You might not be a type A personality like me, but there's this thing, and you tell me if this is you. Have you ever commit, uh, completed your to-do list for the day, and you can't relax because you're like, I, might, I, might, I must have missed something on the list. It's too easy. Today was too easy. So I can't relax. I'm constantly fidgeting around the house, walking and pacing. You should have saw me this morning. I had finished my coffee. I had gotten up early just to kind of prepare, and I felt, all right, I'm prepared. I had my tea, and then I didn't know what to do with myself until Dave and Karen woke up. So I just kind of sat in the kitchen and was like, because I most certainly wasn't just going to sit down, be still, and be by myself. That's, that would be the worst possible thing. We struggle to just relax. Uh, Mind Tools, it's a website that kind of produces these articles, and they put out an article around hurry sickness, and this is what they said. They said, cardiologists Meyer Friedman and Ray Rosenman coined the term hurry sickness after noticing that many of their patients suffered from a harrying sense of time urgency. They defined hurry sickness as a continuous struggle and an unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. We never say, no, we're not going to go to that event. Instead, we just go, how can I squeeze more events in in less time? I'll wake up extra early. I'll stay up extra late so that I can do everything instead of just telling yourself, no. People with hurry sickness think fast, talk fast, act fast. They multitask and rush against the clock, feeling pressured to get things done and getting flustered by any sign of a problem. They're everywhere too. Professor Richard Jolly of the London Business School found that 95% of the managers he studied suffered from this condition. 95% of us in the room are dealing with this. Now, you're saying, that's not me, Tyler. If you're denying it, that's totally fine. I have a list of things to help diagnose us. Here's a couple symptoms of hurry sickness. Uh, You have hurry sickness, and you tell me if you've ever done this. You're going grocery shopping. You get all your things. You get to the checkout. Do you just go to the nearest checkout you come to, or do you look down the aisle and start going, which is the shorter line? And then, and then if you're like a master like I am, not just the shortest line, but who's got like a, a, a grocery cart versus a basket? That's hurry sickness. You're, you're driving your car two lanes. You're coming to a stop sign. You got four cars in front of you. You got two cars in front of you. You're coming to the same stop sign, and you just go, oh, not four cars. That's hurry sickness. You're at work, you're multitasking, you're writing an email while also kind of talking to your boss about something, you're taking notes, and then you go, you're like 
typing an email of the conversation you're having with your boss, or you forget what you're talking about in your email altogether. You just forget, you're multitasking and you forget tasks. That's hurry sickness. And I'm not going to here to pick on the ladies, but it's, it, it is one. Ladies, if you don't have time to do your makeup in the morning so you use your car windshield to put makeup on while you're on your way to the car, I'm not even going to get the rest of that. Just, I'm just, that's hurry sickness. I'm going to leave it there. Leave it there. Other signs, and it gets a little bit more dark, but it's necessary. There's, uh, you're irritable. You become frustrated and angry very easily. And note, don't look at how you treat work colleagues or neighbors, but how you treat your spouse or your kids or your closest friends. That's irritability. Hypersensitivity. One comment or grumpy email ruins your day, and you meditate on the comment. You're like, I don't know if I do that. Have you ever had an argument with somebody at 8 a.m.? And the whole day, you were arguing that, that conversation back and forth, and you're just slamming the other person. And like, people are watching in the background. You're, they're just like, oh, he's getting them. And you're just like, I should have said this and this. You didn't say any of this. You're just like thinking of all the things that you could have said. And by 8 p.m., you're laying in bed and you go, tomorrow, Brenda's going to get it. I'm going to slam her in front of the office. Like, you're, thinking, you're hyper because she sent an email like, hey, guys, remember to wear your Hawaiian shirt on Good Friday. How dare you tell me what to wear, Brenda? How dare you? And that, that's hypersensitivity. That's hurry sickness. Restlessness, when you actually do try to slow down and rest, you can't relax. You give Sabbath a try, but it, you hate it, actually. You read Scripture, and you just got to admit it, you find it boring. You have a, 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 you have a quiet time with God, but you can't focus your mind. You go to bed early, but uh, toss and turn with anxiety. You watch TV, but simultaneously you check your phone. You fold laundry while also answering emails. Workaholism or nonstop activity, you just don't know when to stop. Or worse, you can't stop. Your drug of choice is accomplishment and accumulation. This one for me is important, emotional numbness. You just don't have the capacity to feel another's pain or your pain for that matter. Empathy is a rare feeling for you. You just don't have the time for it. You live in this kind of constant feud or static basic emotion. This is what they say. You feel anxiety. You feel anger. You feel sad, you feel happy. But the nuances between those, the emotions like awe and wonder, you don't even know what that is. So I say, hey, how are you feeling? And you, and you check your four emotions, and you're like, oh, I'm good. Like you only have four emotions. <laughs> Believe it or not, there's a, there's a spectrum of emotion, empathy, compassion, sympathy. But who has time for all those little nuances to explore all the crevices of each type of emotion? Are you frustrated or are you angry? Those are two separate things. Did you know that? And so there's an emotional numbness because you go, I'll feel this and this, but I don't have time to feel the other stuff. Other symptoms, and I gotta go a little bit more quickly. Uh, out of order priorities, always addressing the urgent things in your life, but not the important. A lack of care for physical health. Fast food is easy and fast. The only problem that I have with it is it's not food. Selah. Uh, escapist behavior, and this is important. I had a friend of mine who's a pastor, and he did a soul care um, kind of uh, mini-conference at Northlands, and he just said this. He goes, hey, I just want you to know there's nothing wrong with you coming home from work and, like, binging sports or watching Netflix or anything like that. You, like, if you had a long day, like, there's nothing—give yourself that opportunity. But just know this, that if you tell yourself that Netflix is giving you a time to rest, that's not true. Netflix does not give you rest. It makes you numb. And so for me, I'm going, there's sometimes when the pain is too great that you look for numbness. Women who go into labor, they have an, an option called an epidural. I had one too when my wife had the first baby. It was awesome. No, I'm just kidding. It felt that good. It was that kind of thing. My, my point is this. Epidurals are okay for going through labor. It is not okay to live through it Monday to Friday. They're not designed for that. 
And so if you are numbing yourself, Netflix might not be a problem, but you will look for stronger numbing uh, uh, agents in order to help you relax more. And I think that's where things get into addiction and substances and all sorts of things, because we're not looking to finish a show, which is what we're telling ourselves. What we're actually trying to do is we're trying to get away from our pain. Escapism. Now, what does all this have to do? This is why I find this fascinating. I find it fascinating that a first century rabbi, a Galilean, speaks about truths about real rest and finding real satisfaction in our day-to-day life, and he speaks it in such a way in his time that it actually makes sense and it matters for the 21st century dealings that we have going on. Jesus didn't have a cell phone. He didn't have email going on. There weren't fast cars. There weren't television shows. He had none of that, and yet the way in which he spoke about this very subject that I'm laying before us today, he spoke about it with such an axiom, a truism of how we ought to do our life that it's so relevant for us today, and so I want to explore that. I will say this right now, in order for us to get there, there's two things that I kind of have to pull apart, but if you'll stay with me in these two things, I promise you these aren't rabbit trails or tangents. I want to talk about reality and truth, and I want to talk about what does it mean to be a rabbi, because I know we know the name rabbi, it means teacher, but the, the way we process education and teaching is very different than the way of a rabbi in first century. And so I want to just talk about that. So first, let's just talk about uh, truth and reality. John Mark Cooper's book, the, the Live No Lies, he kind of uh, alludes to this. He says, what we have to understand, especially in the time that we live in, is that reality is truth. There is not a spectrum of truth. There is truth. And so this idea that when people say, I just want to live my truth, I just want to live my authentic self, you have free will. There's, I have nothing against it. But that's not a statement about truth. That's a statement about autonomy. In other words, what they're saying is, I just want to do what I want to do. I just want to live my life. I want to live my truth. It has nothing to do with truth. In other words, if you and I took a trip onto the roof here, and we step off the roof, and I've been educated in understanding gravity my entire life, but you've never been told about gravity, or if you've been told, you go, you know what, I don't believe it. Or you know what, it doesn't fit my lifestyle. Or you know what, I've never really identified with gravity. I've identified more of an anti-gravity person myself. All of those things, all of those things do not matter because if you and I both step off of the roof, we will both experience the very real reality of gravity because gravity on planet Earth, that is what's truth. And so when we try and live our lives the way we want to live, I'm not a, it, you have free will. Live your life how you want to live your life. But this idea that you're somehow bending truth to your life is just not true. You have to bend your life to the truth. Submit to the truth. You can rebel against the truth all you want, but you're not changing the truth. So you can rebel against it, but you will just deal with the consequences of that truth. Are you guys with me so far? So, so the reason that this matters, the reason that I want to talk about reality as truth is this is how we treat our life. Everybody here is living a truth of some kind in a reality. You are the sum total of the choices that you make. All the choices that you made in your life have brought you to this moment. And here's the, you and I know this reality. We don't make choices in our life if we know that they're lies. Nobody goes, you know, I know this is a lie, but I'm gonna do it anyway. You look at it and you go, I believe that is really true for me. And so I'm gonna go do it. Everybody is making choices because of what they believe is true. And every truth that you step into or truth or lie that you step into, you're going to live into a certain reality. That's why we say to like college students who have never moved out from their parents' house and they've got all these grand ideas and they're just like, whatever, mom and dad, I don't need you. I'm gonna go live out there. They're about to get a dose of what? Reality. 
Or you go, that girl needs a reality check. It's because we're going, they do not know what they do not know, and they're about to go experience how the real world works. What we mean by that is there's a truth out there. And the best thing that we can do is understand that truth and submit our lives to that truth because if we rebel against it, or even if we're just simply ignorant of it, it doesn't matter. If you, if you cross a line of truth, it, there's real consequences for it. Now, why does that matter? Because the reality and truth that you are living in, that is your rule of life. Or as Jesus says, as we'll get to talk about in just a moment, it's a yoke on you. Everyone here is being discipled by somebody. You have a rabbi in your life. It might not be a person. It might be a thing. It might be something that impacted your life in the past. There is some, some things that have happened in our past that have impacted us so much that we look at all of our future decisions through that lens of the past. That's a yoke. That's a type of way of doing life. My question to you, are you happy with the life you are living? Are you happy with the yoke that is on your neck? Jesus came with many commands. He said, hey, you must forgive your brother. But those were to his followers. He wasn't saying that to the world. He said, if you're one of my followers, you must forgive your brother and you must love your enemy. Those are commands. But many times Jesus just stated facts. He just said, this is how the world works. In other words, when Jesus came into the world, he, he observed everybody that he saw and everybody was living their truth. First century, just the same as 21st century that we're in. And he was no different. He said, I would like to submit a new truth. I would like to submit a new way. I would like to submit to you a new way of life. I would like to submit to you what I see as reality. And he didn't produce anything new. In fact, he just said, it's like in the beginning of Genesis 1. And he begins to talk about how the world works. So for example, let me get back to my notes here. I just want to read the Beatitudes. When we talk about commands of Jesus, when we talk about uh, whether it's a command or just a statement of fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount is not a conviction saying, I'm going to strong arm you against your will and you are going to submit to my commands because I am God over all things. That's not what he did. He just began to talk about how the world works as he saw it, but as he knew that God designed it. And so he said th these things. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Was any of that a command? Just observations of life and how he saw reality. In America, this is interesting. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you are poor in spirit, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who wants to be poor? And then we go, oh, but poor in spirit's different. It's not, it's not the same thing. It's like, I can still, you know, like, I don't have to think about all the things that I'm accumulating. Like, it's like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will, see, they will inherit the kingdom. I love, I love that one. Uh, if you want to see God, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. If you are not pure in heart, Jesus says, you're probably not going to see God. That's not a command. That's not him holding it over you. He's just going, this is how the world works. This is how gravity works. It's just an observation of his reality. And the reason that this matters and the reason that I bring this all up is because Jesus comes onto the scene and he lays before creation. He lays before the world. Can I submit to you a new way to look at doing life? 
In other words, he had a message. This was his reality. This was his central message. Before you get to Jesus' message was love or how to treat the poor or dealing with those who are oppressing others and how to love your enemies. Before you get to any of that and even the gospel itself, his central message that encapsulated all of those things was Mark 1, 15. The time is fulfilled. And he said this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Reality. Now you should repent, which means think differently. The way you have thought about your life up until this point, the reason you are making decisions, your rules of life, all the choices that you are making that make up the decisions, that make up your life as a whole, everything that's brought you to this moment, he's saying, has it been working for you? And if it's not, here's the good news. There's a new reality that you can have access to. This is his message. But in order to access this reality, you must think differently. Everything you know is about to be challenged. I love that you guys are watching The Chosen. You had, you know, what, what's the quote about difference, thinking differently? Get used to the new different, or whatever it is, yeah. Yeah, I'm just going, that is his message. He's just going, hey, if you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to experience the kingdom of God, you will have to think differently. You will have to live your life differently. You will have to do things differently, or you will miss it. That's not him being cruel. That's just saying, because that's how the world works. And so then he gives an invitation, which is an invitation that, that I absolutely love. He is, essentially, he looks at everybody and he goes, everybody's following a rabbi right now. Everybody's following specific teachings. Everybody is experiencing a certain type of truth. And he says in Matthew, he says, would you come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden? In other words, he's going, when you go on vacation, is it just a rehab for you? Are you exhausted by the way you're doing life? He, he, he says, uh, and I will give you a rest. But listen to what he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He does not say, take this mattress for you so you can have a nap. A yoke is about work. Time off will not heal the problems that have been created by you, you and your time on. Jesus is going, I am not here to just talk to you about how you sleep at night. I am talking to you about how you work the day. Jesus is going, sanctification and justification. You were sanctified and you were justified. Those who put their faith in Jesus, you have salvation, which means when you die, I want you to know you don't have to earn God's love. You most certainly don't have to earn your salvation. It is through faith in me, and that's after death. But Jesus speaks to us about not just what happens when we die and go on. He also talks about, but if you want to have real life here and now, take up my yoke. Do life like I do life Learn how I do things. I love the message translation. It says, I will teach you the rhythms of unforced grace. And he says this, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Jesus is not just trying to help you with circumstances out here. He's trying to help you deal with the anxiousness, the worry, the depression, the anger, the frustration that's wrestling in here. Not just rest for the physical body because of physical problems, but because of the real spiritual realities that are happening on the inside of you. His observation of the world was they are harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And so he goes, hey, if you're tired of that yoke, come to me. I'll give you a real rest. My way is easy and my burden is like, I will teach you how to work your life, but you will have to think differently. Your truth and reality is your yoke. And if you're, ha and this is, this is Jesus' posture. I don't mean this to be snarky. I simply go, I am not here to force my opinion of what truth is on you today. That's another sermon for another day. I am saying, if you are happy with the yoke you are currently walking with, bless you.
But if you relate to hurry sickness, I am going to submit to you that is not how God designed your life to be. I don't think the yoke you are currently holding is working. And I'm going to say, I submit to you, change. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's not just salvation to heaven into eternity. It's also about finding rest for your soul here and now. Do not leave here carrying the same yoke when you and I both know it doesn't work. Jesus makes another claim, John 10.10, the thief, he comes only to steal, kill, and destroy the lies that we say are truths. The world and the culture of how they see reality, the flesh, the desires that we have of we want more, we want to go faster, and the devil himself putting lies on you, putting lies on me, and then saying it's truth. And I'm going, culture has this opinion right now that truth is a very spectrum thing and you have the right to live your own individual truth. And I'm going, if you believe that, I'm not here to fight with you on it. I'm simply saying culture is producing yokes and I've worn the yoke and it stinks. So if you want to keep following that idea and that ideology, that is your rabbi. I go, I, I'm not here to tell you who, who the rabbi should be. I'm just saying that's what that rabbi says. Jesus has a different message and a different invitation. So Jesus wants, us to, it wants to help us to repent, or in other words, reorient your life around the true reality so you experience what he would describe as the actual good life and to avoid the consequences that come from ignorance and the lies that we live. Jesus, what we have to understand is that he was not only a Messiah and came in to save us uh, and giving us salvation and grace, he was also a rabbi or a teacher. Now, here's what I would say. I, I just don't have time um, to, to explain fully uh, the, the, the Jewish education system, but more or less, after you get through general education and after young men would, would memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, they would have an interview with a rabbi, and, they, and the rabbi would just grill them on all things Torah, all things the law. They wanted to see how smart is this student. Is he, is he worth my invitation of come, follow me? But if a, a rabbi extended to a pupil, hey, you should come and follow me, it is not like the way we see education. It was not like saying, hey, come and follow me, and I'll teach you about philosophies of life. And obviously, you're going to create your own philosophies about how you see life. So I'll teach you some philosophies, but you know, you'll, you'll go in your own way, and you'll kind of give your twist on it. You'll give your, that, that's just not how uh, Jewish rabbis worked. If a, if a rabbi said, come and follow me, what the pupil understood as the invitation, he goes, I will become this man. I'm going to eat what that man eats. I'm going to dress like he dresses. I will talk with the same inflections that he talks with. I will relate into the community like he relates. I am not here to try and become a, a type of rabbi that I like. I am becoming this rabbi, a carbon copy it to the best of my ability. I want to be like him. And so when Jesus came to his disciples and he said, hey, come and follow me, everybody in that culture goes, you want me to lay down how I see the world and the truths that I want to live to come and embrace, not just consider your truths. I'm going to embrace your truths for my life and live the same life that you are living. And Jesus is like, that's the invitation. So to be a disciple, or as I would, probably a clearer word, an apprentice of Jesus is to become like Jesus. So when we say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ, it's not because, hey, I'm a good Christian and you could use some work. It's me going, I am trying my very best to become like Jesus. Follow me on this journey, and we're going to do this together. I had men before me who, who've been following Jesus a lot longer. They've learned the tricks of the trade. And I'm trying my very best not to figure out how to be good men like them. I'm trying to be like Jesus, the one that they've been following forever. I'm just trying to use anything I can, reading off of other people's notes, to try and figure out this Jesus way. 
And so what I'm convicted by, what I want to lay before you is this. When we look at the life of Jesus and we look at reality, uh, it was interesting. Dallas Willard said this. When Dallas was asked, give me one word that describes Jesus. He didn't say tender or loving or humble. He just said relaxed. Jesus was relaxed. Now, here's what I want to lay before you. You Yeah, that's Jesus. And we got, you, like, Jesus doesn't know my life. Jesus wasn't like a single mom raising their kids, working two jobs. Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't understand that like his yoke's not that easy because he had a different life than I did. So all I want to lay before you is this. If we ask the question, was Jesus' life hard? If you didn't read the end of the, the, the gospel, it goes bad quick for Jesus. He, he gets crucified. Not a great life. He goes, hey, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I'm homeless. He was homeless most of his life, just traveling, just like sleeping on people's couches. His life was incredibly hard, yes. If I ask the question, did Jesus have a lot to do in his day? He's like, not only am I gonna be a savior for the world in three years' time, but I'm gonna bring 12 fishermen along with me and I'm gonna help, they're gonna be the leaders of this movement that I'm creating. I don't know if you try to like raise up, like my daughter's five right now, teaching a five-year-old's hard enough. Could you remember, imagine 12 fishermen, 20-somethings who like have no idea what you're talking about half the time? Jesus had a lot to do, yes. Did he have some things that we would say are urgent? He had three years to go to the cross and get all these affairs in order. I'd say his life was urgent. But was he relaxed and in a, or was he relaxed or was he in a hurry? I think he was relaxed. He was very interruptible. He was on mission constantly and at the same time you could just go, hey Jesus, before you get there, would you also heal this person? Like, ah, okay, yeah. I love what John Mark Comer says, and, it, and it's this. I'm simply, what I've done at this point is I, I've laid before you what I believe is a problem. I am criticizing the yoke that we have all been carrying for a while. And then I'm observing the yoke that Jesus has been carrying. I'm looking at his life, and I look at being relaxed, and I, I look and I go, I would like a relaxed life like Jesus. Don't you? And John Mark Comer's point that he made in his book was this. If you want the life of Jesus you will have to embrace or adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. The invitation that he gave for salvation is a free gift that is just extended by faith, but the way in which he lived his life and the practices that he committed himself to on a day-to-day basis, that is what led him to a relaxed sense of peace. And if you want that kind of lifestyle, if you want to work like that, you will have to adopt the practices, the actual effort and work. You're not earning the love of God, you're not earning grace, but there is an effort to these practices. And so I'm laying before you, do you want to walk out with the same yoke that you came in with, or would you like to try this yoke on? But if you try this yoke on, there is practices that we have to commit our lives to. If we want the life that Jesus demonstrated and modeled for us, we will have to embrace his lifestyle. All right, I got I to gotta speed through. No, we're actually good. Let's go with this. Uh, discipline and practice when it comes to effort. Did anybody watch the new Top Gun movie? Top Gun movie, and you're all unchristian. Get out of here. Like, we, we watch The Chosen and, or, or The Passion. That's it. Get out of here. You guys watch Top Gun. No. Top Gun. Now, I try my absolute very best uh, to work out on occasion periodically. Then I saw Miles Teller, uh, football beach scene, uh, Top Gun, and I go, man, those guys, that guy's abs. How about it? You know what I mean? I'm like, that, that guy's ripped. I like that. And then I watched him, like, go Mach 9 in these planes. I'm like, man, I'd like to go fast like that. That's awesome. And then I'm on YouTube, and Miles Teller's in an interview, and it literally says, like, the training to get into one of these jets and how to get abs like Miles Teller. And I'm like, it's only three minutes long. Of course I'll do that. I totally want to watch to figure out this, this Joker's game. Click. 
And then he begins to describe what he had to eat for like nine months. It was pretty much just like grilled chicken and broccoli. And if he felt crazy, he'd get asparagus instead of broccoli. And he just ate that for nine months. And then on the beach scene, he's like, oh yeah, you just dehydrate your body for three days. And then right when you go out to shoot, you just uh, pound some Coke real quick because apparently it just shrivels up the skin and you just tight. I go, I'm not doing that. <laughs> That's crazy, huh? Who's eating chicken? I was like, I would totally eat chicken and broccoli for nine months straight, but like, have you ever had a box of donuts? You know what I mean? Like, like, and then they're talking about being in a jet, and they're like, yeah, so like, before we got in the jet, what they had to do is they had to like strap us into like a, a fake cockpit, blindfold us, then they tipped us upside down, and then they just dropped us in a pool, and then the water filled in, we had to like blindfold, unbuckle ourselves, and get out. That was like day one. I was like, oh, I'm not doing that. My point is, is this, we can observe the fruit of somebody's life and go, oh man, I totally want that. And then when you look at the way in which they got there, you have to make the decision, is that the yoke that you want to put on? I'm like, man, I see all of that. I go, love that, love that, totally cool, totally, but not doing it. And I think sometimes as Christians, we might even use the excuse of like, well, there's, there's grace and all these kinds, I'm, 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 I couldn't be more for grace, 100%. But we look at the life of Jesus and go, I want the relaxed life of Jesus, but like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like change my routines. That would be crazy. I'm not gonna like, not, I'm not gonna like stop overworking. That, that, that double pay during overtime, that's really good. I'm not gonna like, I, I can't have, I don't have time for eight hours of sleep. You know, multiple times the disciples had to wake up Jesus because important stuff was happening. Jesus never hurt for sleep. He's like, it's like, a sh- like, like the boat is sinking, and it's like, Jesus, I mean, it's like, I wish we had a guy who could work miracles to help us. And they're like, oh yeah, Jesus. And he look, and he's just like, sl- like sleeping. He will get his rim cycle. You know what I mean? Like, he's just like, he's like, I'm gonna save the world, but I'm not gonna be like all sleep deprived by it. Like, it's like, I'm like, and so we look at Jesus's life, and we go, man, I want that life. But no, nah, I'm not gonna do silence and solitude. I'm not gonna live simply. I mean, no, I'll take a Sabbath, I'll go to church, but I mean, I'm gonna, I mean, I gotta answer the emails at seven at night before going in on Monday. If you want the life of Jesus, we will have to embrace the lifestyle of Jesus. All right, so, so I say all of that to say this. Um, we are not looking, what I'm about to put up on the slides um, coming up next is a set of practices, spiritual practices that have been pulled uh, uh, from looking at and observing the life of Jesus. These are not commands, okay? These are, this is not going, hey, if you're gonna be a good Christian and you're gonna get into heaven, you need to do all of these things. They're not commands. They are practices. This is not about perfection. These are just going, as we observe the life of Jesus, this is who he was. And so just reading those off, silence and solitude. Jesus constantly got away from the crowds and connected with his father, prayer, fasting, uh, Bible, or just reading the Torah in his context, but spending time in the word, community, Sabbath, uh, Sunday gatherings. He was all about building his church, communion, worship, teaching, serving, simple living. Some of us call it minimalism. I would say that's kind of a cultural version of what Jesus was actually doing. Celebration, actually, you know, actually taking the moment to celebrate someone's birthday is a spiritual practice. Jesus was all about some parties. And he was the one changing the wine. It's crazy. Anyway, uh, gr- grieving, confession, secrecy. Secrecy is this idea of like, like giving generously without somebody knowing. This idea of just practicing. And so he heals somebody. He goes, hey, tell nobody how this happened. Don't tell anybody about me. Secrecy. Uh, gratitude, generosity, and then this thing of slowing down. Jesus was just never caught in a hurry. Like, hey, guys, we've got to rush and get over here. We need, to, we need to go for a run. He was always walking. Now, 
in that context, these are, a, these are just a few spiritual practices. They're not all the practices that we can pull from the life of Jesus. I want to highlight four of them as it pertains to hurry. These practices help us deal with unhurrying our life. So the other practices like fasting, those are great. They're helpful for a number of other things. But when it comes to unhurrying your life, getting rid of hurry sickness, there's four practices that I want to highlight and lay before you. Silence and solitude, Sabbath, simplicity or simple living, and slowing down or slow. Let me start with silence and solitude. Just a few things as as we're wrapping things up. Silence and solitude. Jesus did this often to just get away and be with his Father. Here's what I want to say. Hurry sickness has escapism in it. What's the difference between escapism or isolation and silence and solitude? Escapism and isolation is getting away from your problems and people. Tyler drives into North Carolina, I don't want to talk to anybody. That's escapism. Solitude is getting away to connect with your Heavenly Father. One is to get away from problems and people. The other ones you're getting away to connect with God. It's not about emptying and clearing your calendar and schedule. It's going, I am getting away not just to be by myself or empty my mind. I want to go be filled by my heavenly father because in that space, he will give me context for the pain that I am feeling. He will give me comfort for the grieving that I am in. He will help me look at the, light, at the world different. He will begin to teach me about the kingdom and how reality should work and how I ought to adopt more practices to help experience that reality in my life, perhaps even overcoming the issues that I'm dealing with. Silence and solitude is helpful to process, to get away, to be filled. But if all you do is escaping from your problems, it's like an eight-day vacation rehab. It will not fix the thing that you're trying to fix. Silence and solitude. There's so much more in it. Read the book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I don't have time to go in more. I'll say one last thing about it, though. Mother Teresa, I thought this was amazing. Mother Teresa had an interview with a news reporter, and he's like, uh, Mother Teresa, can you, when you pray to God, uh, what do you say? And she goes, oh, I don't say anything. I just listen. And then he goes, oh. So he thinks about it for a minute. He's not a Christian. He doesn't, doesn't know. He, he goes, oh, okay, so, so when you listen, what does God say? Oh, he doesn't say anything. Either. He, he listens too. And the guy's like, I thought prayer, praying was talking. And, <laughs> talking. and she goes, she looks at him and she goes, if I have to explain it to you, you just, you just won't get it. <laughs> In other words, it's this idea of like the kingdom of God operates different. There's time to pray and partition. There's also time just to come and be silent. I think it's like that C note for musicians where like that, that pure C, C note or whatever. It's this idea of like, I just need to like hear that and like settle my soul. It's not about what's being said. It's about uh, in the presence of God, there's a settling that comes over the soul. Uh, Sabbath. I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to attack anybody. Just remember that. I'm just reading the Bible. Sabbath. From the beginning... God built into the fabric of his reality, the actual reality, a rhythm of how we ought to work. Genesis 1, created for six, and he rested on the seventh. He said that this was a good, this, I, this rhythm, not just the, what he created, but this, this way of working, this is how you ought to do it. Ten commandments. One of the commandments, remember the Sabbath. It's on the very same list of, oh, and also you probably shouldn't kill people. So I don't know, you're like, everybody's like, you should never murder. It's like, remember the Sabbath. This is killing other people. This is killing you. This is important. And so I'm not telling you how to do your Sabbath. I'm saying follow our rabbi and watch how he handles Sabbath and do it like that. If you want a real rest, you will have to adopt a new way of living.
I got to keep moving. Um, I'll, I, I'll, I do want to make this practical. For me, I'm a pastor, so my Sabbath isn't on Sunday. It's on Friday. It's when my day off is. And so even just this practical routine of going, I drop my daughter off at um, kindergarten, and my wife and I, we go for a walk. We, there's a little breakfast place by our house, and we have breakfast together, and we just talk and process life. That is something that I'm guarding because I'm guarding my Sabbath. So I'm not just asking, hey, remember to like take a chill pill on Sunday. I'm saying, what are practices that you are going to do and you will not allow the the life around you to rob them? It's amazing to me that we will show up on Monday at 8 a.m. If we don't, our boss will fire us. But we're like, it's okay if I don't connect with my spouse because, you know, they can't fire me. You will, you, you will have multiple bosses in your life, and when you retire, I know that they'll say, man, you did so great for the company. They're going to forget about you, and they'll replace you, and they're going to move on. The company will move on. Your spouse will be with you. Guard your Sabbath. Guard your time with your family. Guard your time with your spouse. This is what it means to practice the Sabbath and make it your own. What helps fill your soul, what helps fill your um, spouse's soul. There's no rule to it. It's just this idea of going, whatever's going to fill your soul, do that. Simplicity. Simplicity is another practice. I want to be careful because when I describe it, you might go, is he talking about like the poverty gospel? Like this thing of like, you know, you're not holy unless you're, you're poor. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, is we tend to go more is always better, faster is always better. And that's just simply not true. When you look at the life of Jesus, there was a, a, a simplicity to the way that he operated, that he spoke with people, that he shared with people, that he operated in life. And we live in a culture that constantly defaults to more and is always, uh, more rather is always the right answer. More is not necessarily a sin, but here is its tendency. Listen to this. It's not necessarily a sin, but here's a tendency. With more or faster comes complexity, and complexity usually will lead to hurry. And hurry leads to burnout, which is the cycle we've been talking about. Simplicity leads to clarity. Clarity leads to margin. And margin gives you space so you can process life. And when curveball comes, you have margin to address the curveball. Some people are exasperated by life, not because their life is impossibly hard, but because they have too much going on in their life. So if anything changes in their routine, it collapses them. It's like living paycheck to paycheck for your soul. Any bump in the road can set you off. I find this interesting that sin is, the word sin, it means missing the mark. So if the mark, let's just say, is abiding with our heavenly father, then sin and your cell phone are kind of the same. (laughs) Culture around us and distraction operate very similar. If, If it's missing the mark, if it's getting disconnected for a rhythm or a way of doing life, sin will absolutely pull you out of this lifestyle for sure. It has real consequences because you're conflicting with reality and truth. But your phone can also do the same thing. It distracts you and disconnects you from the vine that brings life. Selah, just throwing it out there. Did Tyler just say that you need to like throw your phone away? I didn't say that. I'm just simply saying, let's be mindful. So I want to describe simplicity with our phones. So I'm going, I realize for me, I'm not saying this for you. I'm not not your rabbi. I'm not putting a yoke on you. I'm saying for me, uh, it is common for pastors to have a social media presence to build that brand. Am I right? This idea like, because I got a message, I want to be an influencer. I'm going, it was too much for my soul. It overwhelmed me, the problems that were going on in my streets of Atlanta. It was overwhelming me about what was going on. So I just scrubbed my social media, not deactivated. I just said, I don't want it anymore. I'm not putting that on you. I'm simply saying, I looked at the yokes and I go, that yoke that's promised me connection and community is not doing that. It's giving me anxiety and worry. And I ruthlessly eliminated it from my life. 
I'm not saying for you to do that. That's not you. This is not, a, this is not a prescription. It's a description of how simplicity has helped. And I gotta tell you, it has helped my soul tremendously. My wife periodically has to show me, oh, it's so-and-so's birthday, and she shows her social media because it's not her yoke. And, I, and so like, I miss a lot of information. I go, I'm okay with missing some information. You wanna know why? Because I'm not God. I'm not omnipresent. And it's okay that Tyler doesn't know things. And so are there, if you want life, you will have to lose it. If you want actual life, though, if you give your life, you will gain it. What does that mean? It means moments like this. Culture gives us this FOMO, you're gonna miss out. The devil says there's always more. You should be having more. You deserve more. And I'm saying push back and go, you know what? I'm going to simplify my life because I don't need these things to find happiness. All I need to do is connect with my father and I can find true life. I gotta move faster. This thing is, I apologize, this screen's been going off and on, and so now my time, I, I, it's completely eaten up. I apologize. I'll, I'll, I'll close. I'm all right? Come on, G- give me an amen too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I'm preaching a message on hurry, and I'm like, guys, I'm running out of time. Sorry. Sorry. You know what? Just skip lunch. You guys can go hungry. It's fine. It's not big... I give the bread of life. Don't worry about lunch. No. No, I do want to respect, I do want to respect the time, though. I want to respect your time. Slow. Uh, I love this. Jesus' demand from the world around him was very high, but his pace of life was incredibly slow. Uh, You never see him running somewhere, especially like, so Jesus gets a report that his good friend Lazarus is on his deathbed. And if you got healing in your hands, you're like, I'm gonna go help my boy out. And Jesus is, is focused on what's happening in their present place. And he goes, no, I'm not, I'm not gonna go there and meet. He waits three days and then he goes. Why? Because he goes, I understand that that's urgent. But what I'm doing right here, right now, to be present in this moment, that's important. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll close with some of those thoughts in, in just a moment. If you look at your calendar, I wanna be as practical as possible when it comes to this. So if you look at your calendar now, do you feel like you have a ton of margin? Jesus was very interruptible. He's on his way to heal, a, a, a father comes to him in, in great despair and goes, my daughter, my baby girl is dying. Please come help me. And on the way there, he's touched by a woman who touches his cloth because she's had a blood issue. She touches him and he heals. And he, and he doesn't just, she literally is healed. She got what she wanted. And he's like, great, I'm glad you got what you want. I'm gonna keep moving. He goes, he, oh, there was great, there's some great faith here. Power went out for me. Somebody here. And he goes, no, I'm gonna stop because this is an opportunity to focus on the kingdom of God at work. In this dark, cold world that we're living in, the kingdom of God just shined through. I want people to see it. I don't just want her to walk away with healing. I want the people in this crowd to know God is on the move. And so he pauses and he waits. If you look at your calendar, the reason I bring up your margin is it's in the margin that we allow ourselves to be interrupted. Are you interruptible? There's this great kind of African saying, um, my, my mother-in-law, they're from South Africa, and there's this kind of term that they say in life, instead of apologizing from running late to a meeting or going over time like I'm doing now, sorry about it, they say, they say hey, so, they say, so sorry, I had to make time for Dave. In other words, they're going, I'm not running late, Dave's just important to me, so I had to make time for him. Are you able to make time for your kids, for your spouse? DCF in the mid- literally we're hearing prophetic words of the Lord is on the move at DCF are you making time for what God is doing here I want a life that is interruptible and it's not right now and I got to fix that the yoke I'm carrying in this in this category is not good I need to fix it I would suggest it would help you as well
C.S. Lewis, let, let him attack you with some words. He says this, how you act when you are interrupted is who you really are. <laughs> Stand up, girl. Come on, let's just go, just go, just go, come on. We talked about this at lunch. I was like, bring it, let's go, let's go. She, she just, you don't know, she just gave me an extra 45 minutes. We're gonna go all day, here we go. <laughs> just like, come on. Who you are, how you act when you're interrupted, that's who you really are. I don't like who I am when I'm interrupted. I get flooded with emotion. And my wife gets the brunt of it sometimes. Margin in your calendar is how we find slowness. Allowing yourself to walk at a slow pace. Being okay with, you know what? I'm at the grocery store. I'm okay. I'm just going to go to the long line because it's close to me. And maybe this is the line that the Lord has for me. Perhaps God has a better rhythm of life for you, but it requires boundaries. Psalm uh, 16, it says, his boundary lines for me have fallen on pleasant places, which is a statement about he has restricted you in some form or fashion, but it's good. And then further on it says, I delight in his inheritance. In other words, God's inheritance to you is breathtaking. It's profound, it's beautiful. I think it's gonna take a lifetime for you to fully understand all of it, but it does have its limits because you have your limits. He will not give you more than you can handle. He is not gonna give you something, even if it's good, that's gonna overwhelm you and exhaust you. The boundary lines he puts for you are not him trying to restrict you from fun. That was the lie in Genesis 1 that's been just creeping into our system. Oh, you know why God really doesn't want you to eat of that fruit? He doesn't want you to have. Restrictions and limitations are not bad. They are a comfort and a safety. He is my refuge, he is my fortress. Those are how I see my boundary lines. Where Tyler ends, it's somebody else to begin. I don't over-exceed myself. So some practical notes as we close. Just two, two thoughts. because I, 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 I don't just want to say, hey, here's a problem, and here's how Jesus handled it, and like, good luck and figure out. I want to like, make this as, hey, what can we do tomorrow to help like, establish this kind of life pace in our hearts and soul? Um, so what I would say, number one, start with you today. Look at your life and your calendar. This message that I just gave you about these four things of silence and solitude, Sabbath, simplicity, and slowing down. I did not just give you four more things that you should be doing. I gave you four practices that will help you eliminate the things that you should not be doing. I don't want you to do more things. I want you to use these as tools, weapons to fight against, to ruthlessly eliminate hurry in your life. And so to look at your calendar and to go, how, I love how Dallas Willard says it, we have to operate our lives as if he were we. If Jesus had your husband or your wife or your kids or worked your job or had your, your college courses or had your, your life circumstances, if he had your life, how would he take your life and operate it? We're figuring that out. So to look at your counting going, if Jesus had my week, how would he see it? What would he change? And the question is then going, am I going to submit to that? I would just be mindful to guard against when I say start with you. I, I think I've already alluded to this, but just be mindful. I am not saying like, great time, I'm gonna clear my calendar, pull myself out of every commitment that I've ever had. That's not the call of Jesus. Don't, don't go, hey, sorry, Dave and Karen, I can't serve on any teams here because, you know, I'm trying to be slow and, and, and simple in my life, and this is just complicated. The church that Jesus is building, commitment to community, the thing that he is building is how you connect to life. It's not about getting away from commitments. It's about committing to the things that will bring you life. The call is not doing less, 
but doing more of what brings you life and to be mindful of that. Uh, and then lastly, I, I hope, and I'm, I'm truly closing here, I, I hope that as you heard this, this is not a call for perfection, but a call of practice. His mercies are new every morning. I love what First Thessalonians says, and I'll close with this verse. It says this, Paul writes this, and it sounds like he's talking about hurry, and then he leads to this. Yet we urge you, that sounds very urgent, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Okay, simple, what's more and more? And to make it your ambition. I don't know how you use your ambition. I use it to go full throttle and to get as much as I can and to work as hard as I can. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. I love what he continues on because I think it's a helpful truism of life. And then he says, you should mind your own business and work with your hands. Your cell phone and distractions are wanting you to constantly overextend yourself. Mind your own business. Stay in the boundary lines that the Lord has called you to walk in. And lead, make it your ambition to stay here in the quiet life where you will find rest for your soul. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, now I ask for you to do what only you can do, and that is would you quiet our hearts and our minds, and would you help us find rest? Would you help us commit to these practices and help us to follow this rabbi? I, I pray for anybody here today who's been walking with a very heavy yoke. Holy Spirit, I ask, would you just take that yoke off of them? Put it down. Let them leave it here at your mercy seat. And Jesus, I ask, would you put on the easy yoke? Not just so that we find rest on vacation, but that we learn how to live in rest as we work and move and have our being in you. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would teach us how to abide in your presence and to find comfort for our soul, comfort from pain and grief that we experience in this life, comfort from our past. Would you just help watch over us, make us strong, and be the great comforter that you promised to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I find it interesting. Jesus is coming back with uh, Joseph and Mary, um, and he goes missing. <laughs> and uh, they find him and kind of like, hey, you know, what are you doing? Come on, you're 12. And he says, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Now, Joseph's business was carpentry, but that's not what he was doing. That's all Jesus had known since he was, you know, until he was 12 was carpentry. That's not what he said his business was about. And I love that, that Tyler, Tyler finished with that. So just find out what, what Jesus is doing to you. What's the business he has for you? And do that. It's going to be good. When, we're going to have our prayer team up here to pray for you. As others are hurrying that way, <laughs> if you need ministry, you need someone to pray for you, to trust with you, to love on you, if you need that this morning, we're going to be up here. We'll have a team up here who would love to do that. Otherwise, have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next time.